Okay, if you have a Bible, open to the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we're continuing our Mark series. We're in Mark chapter 9. We're actually finishing chapter 9 this morning. So our, our actual text today is Mark 9, verses 42 to 50. And on the red, in the Red Pew Bibles, that's page 845. I'll give you a moment to find that. And then let us read again, beginning in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The word of the Lord. Quite a scripture for Mother's Day, huh? It's like, so awesome. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. Um, let's, let's talk about hell on Mother's Day. And um, right after those baby dedications too. But actually, as you were reading that first verse, you might have thought, hey, that's kind of appropriate, right? That, that first verse, but the rest of it, I don't know. Um, let's pray because we need it. And so let's pray. Lord, um, we love your word, and there is reason and there is purpose uh, to it. And so we ask for you to reveal that to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hell. We, we probably all have different conceptions as to what it's like physically, but let's focus on what it's spiritually like because we can all get a little bit cynical when we talk about hell in its physical form because we think of fire or demons with pitchforks and forked tongues and, and uh, horns and tails and all those sorts of things. But let's get away from that and look at it spiritually uh, because hell is real. It is a reality that we can be separated from God. And so essentially that is what hell is. It is a disconnection from God. It is a not having communion with God any longer. And sin, which can also be something that we're cynical about, is the cause of that separation. Sin simply means missing the mark. And in our culture, we don't easily accept what the mark is. We tend to want to establish our own mark, which is fascinating because we desire people to be within our own mark, but we don't really want to be within the marks of others. And you look at our world and the lack of respect we have toward other world governments and how others view ours and believing that the other has missed the mark continually and it just kind of goes back and forth. We all have a sin nature. And this is something that some people have an issue with because they believe that people by nature are good. Now, we all know that it's Mother's Day and 
all of you mothers know that your kids did not come out perfect. And if you don't know that yet, they've probably not entered their teenage years. So, but ask yourself this, did any of you have to teach your children how to lie? Anybody? You have to have children first before you answer that. Okay? And some may argue, you know, that's just the evolutionary process. It's Darwin's survival of the fittest that, you know, the kids just kind of learn that. And that that's why they have to adapt that way. And that's why they went this way. But then why do we have laws against fraud? And why do we have to take oaths in court? Because how can we survive if our nature is dishonesty? Where there is no truth to rely on. So that is why we teach our children about honesty. We teach them about integrity, about speaking the truth. But it seems that the Western world is, is growing in cynicism towards the things of God, towards hell, towards sin, also judgment. Even though we judge and we are judged all the time, if you are a student, you are judged by your exams. If you work, your performance is judged. We make judgments all the time. Yet, when it comes to spiritual judgment, no one has the right to judge you. The existence of God, hell, sin, judgment, they've all been trivialized in our Western world. Now, some may argue how a good and a loving God can allow people to go to hell. And so, just let me allow to push back a little bit and say that Hell is a proof that God is indeed good and loving. Is it good and loving to force someone to be somewhere they don't want to be? To have a relationship that they don't want to have? And since heaven is being in the presence of God and hell is, in, is the absence of God, where else can anyone go? If someone does not want to be with God, they aren't forced to, even though God so desires communion with them. One of Jesus' original disciples, John, wrote this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, that God is love. The apostle Paul defined what love is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. It reads this, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. There will be no love absent of God because he is love. Hell is the absence of God. People who want nothing to do with God will be given the dignity to have that. But there will be no love in hell since that is the absence of God. My purpose in briefly talking about hell, sin, judgment is not exhaustive. It's just merely an attempt to put in a better position, put us in a better position to be able to be able to clearly hear the tone of the scriptures from this morning and that it is a very serious tone that is coming from Jesus in this scripture that we just read. And so let's not miss that, that tone, that heaviness in regards to this. We can't gloss over the tremendously heavy burden that Jesus came to bear. 
that he gave his life, he came down from his heavenly throne to establish communion with us, for us to experience love, to be in his presence, heaven, to be delivered from sin and judgment. Our eternal destinies are intimately connected to Jesus, and there is no rejoicing from Jesus or any of his true followers in having people go to hell, to be separated from God. God desires for all to have communion with him. And so that's why Jesus died for us. John 3, 16, this is a very well-known verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. No one in the Bible talks more about hell than Jesus because he came to rescue us from it. But God will not violate anyone's dignity. Let me, let me share one, observ- one more observation before we jump into our text. You notice that the strongest statements about hell are directed towards those who claim to know God. When Jesus addressed sinners, he, he did not proclaim hell to those who didn't say that they didn't know God. He, he didn't do this with, with the tax collector Zacchaeus. He didn't talk about hell with them. He didn't talk about hell with the woman at the well, that Samaritan woman. He, he talked about hell to those who profess to know God, who profess to be religious. When he spoke to sinners, he spoke to them about heaven, about being with God, about being in God's presence. So church, let me ask you this question. How are we doing with this? Because so oftentimes people want to just like do the fire and brimstone and they want to talk about hell and all these sorts of things. Are we talking about hell and judgment to people who don't profess to know God? Because Jesus did not do that. He talked about hell to people that kind of thought that they were going to heaven. And was like, whoa, 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 course correction. You're not. Right? He do, but he doesn't bang people's heads with that fear. Right? He doesn't go to the Samaritan woman and bang her with that fear. You're going to go to hell if you don't repent. He doesn't do that. So just want to throw that out there in terms of how we kind of share the gospel and how we practice our evangelism. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Essentially, don't cause others to sin. That's what this verse is. And in light of this verse, before in verse 41, this would mean don't cause others to commit the smallest of sins. Why is this? Because in verse 41, Jesus speaks about the smallest good you can do for someone who belongs to Christ and gain reward. Even if it was something as small as a cup of water to give someone. And so going into verse 42, along that same vein, causing one to sin, even if it's the smallest of sins, is it causes grave consequences. And when Jesus speaks of little ones, he's, he's not just talking about the, the children. He's not talking about just that. In a previous study, we looked at Jesus' reference to little ones, to being those who are vulnerable and weak and helpless, needy, which can, can be any of us who are 
kind of in a tough situation in life. And it just really depends on what's going, in on, what's going on in our lives, right? Because sometimes we're more needy than others. Sometimes we're more helpless than, than other times. So whoever causes another to sin, to, to cause separation from Jesus, it's so severe that it's better to tie a one-ton stone and throw you into the Pacific Ocean than to cause that separation. Jesus is getting across how serious sin is, that we can't be indifferent about the things that separate us, separate people from God. Our friends, our children, our colleagues, we can't be indifferent about causing others to sin. And then in verse 43, it changes from causing others to sin to the sin, uh, to addressing our own. Addressing our own sin and the sin within our life is, is very serious as well. Sin starts from within. It's not something that can be addressed from the outside. Our actions don't cure us from the consequences of sin, namely the, the separation from God. It's from within. In Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, Jesus said this, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. It's from within. Then we act upon our sin, and, and it more than likely involves our hands, feet, and eyes. And so back to Mark chapter 9, verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eyes cause you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. I'm so glad to see that everyone here is sinless. I don't see rolling stumps coming down the aisle like I don't like it's so pleasant to see this the point isn't to make what Jesus said here into a literal action to attempt to achieve righteousness that's not the point here the point is to examine the condition of the inmost self our heart and transforming that into a heart that is like Jesus's. When talking about sin, many people concern themselves with actions, right? What you do or what you don't do. But here's the deep, deeper question. The deeper question is who we are. The question Jesus asks are, what would you do if you could? What would you do if you could? What would you do if you knew you wouldn't get caught? What would you do if you knew you wouldn't get caught? See, getting rid of body parts doesn't change the outcomes of those questions. See, it's all about the heart. When... when when, when do we address our sin? Now, when it comes to addressing sin, one of the most dangerous words to have floating in our minds is later. 
It's one of the most dangerous words. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15 reads, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today. Today. Today, don't be indifferent about how you live. Our words and actions, they influence those around us. Our words and actions, they reveal what's inside of our hearts, and our hearts reveal who we really are. The best time to change is not later. It's now. We see these references of hell in verses 43, 45, 47, and then we get to verse 48 to describe hell, verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The Greek word for hell here is Gehenna, which is used as a metaphor to describe eternal destruction without God. And the ancient Greek translations come from an actual place outside of Jerusalem's wall, the, the Valley of Hinnom. And so this was a place that was desecrated by Molech worship. It was desecrated by human sacrifices. So what the Jews did is they created this place to be a dump. It shouldn't be lived on. It shouldn't be built on. This place is a dump with all the stuff that has happened here. So we're going to throw all of our refuse. We're going to throw all of our rubbish into this place. And we're going to just burn our trash there. We're just going to let it burn. And so people in Jesus' day were familiar with this saying because the worms at the dump, they were perpetual. There were always worms at the dump. And the fire, it never quenched. It was burning 24 hours. They always burned the trash there. So the fire was burning all the time. Worms are there all the time. So this is a picture of worms and fire, this, this graphic picture of what it's like to be separated from God. Then G Jesus used this picture of fire in a really different way in verse 49, and he kind of turns it a little bit, and he says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Now in order to understand what Jesus said here, we need to look at the Old Testament. And in particular, the temple sacrifices. So let's turn to Leviticus chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Reads this in verse 12. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of your covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. When these offerings were brought, they were burned and they were destroyed in the fire, completing the sacrifice. Jesus referenced this sacrifice with salt and fire to relate it to those that he's speaking to. That their sacrifice is a living sacrifice. That we are to be living sacrifices in following Jesus. We are living sacrifices and that we will be salted. And the fire will be a refining fire. The Apostle Paul wrote about living sacrifices in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He wrote this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, Paul also wrote about refining fire in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let's, let each one take care how he builds upon it. 
For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the judgment day, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test that sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. One of Jesus' closest disciples, Peter, also wrote about this fire in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. He wrote, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Fiery trials are coming upon us. And those trials will reveal whether we are followers of Jesus who have taken seriously the transformation of our hearts, which dictates the actions of our hands, feet, and eyes, how will we respond to seasoning, refining fire that will take place in all of our lives because everyone will be salted with fire? Everyone. No one is exempt from tests. No one is exempt from trials. We will all face tests and trials and so do you see this whole picture that Jesus is painting the picture of sacrifice right the the living sacrifice you and I are as followers of Jesus that every sacrifice will be salted and then placed into the fire because all sacrifices are salted with fire we all face tests and trials. Verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Salt was very crucial during the time of Jesus. It was used as a disinfectant, an antiseptic, a preservative. It was used for flavor. Salt is an essential mineral for human and animal life. We cannot live without salt. Salt is composed of sodium chloride. And so I bring this up for all the uh, chemistry nerds. You know your NACL. You're thinking about the elements chart and all this kind of stuff. And I love the t-shirts that you all wear. Um, For those of you who have a chemistry background or, or remember anything from chemistry class, you know that NaCl, that compound, is very stable. It's a very stable compound, which means that that salt quality, that saltiness, actually can't be lost. Right? So you're thinking like, hey, that's, what's, what is this? How can saltiness be lost from salt? It's a very stable compound. It's not possible. Salt from Jesus' day was different. Okay, salt from Jesus' day came from the extremely mineral, dense, rich Dead Sea, where they put these salt pans out and they were used to evaporate water and then you would be left with all these minerals. So the very stable sodium chloride was in these salt pans along with a bunch of other minerals. 
And so sodium chloride is, is very water-soluble, as you can see, because when you put salt in water and you just mix it up, it's like gone. You, you don't see the crystals anymore, right? It's very water-soluble. And any condensation, any rainwater that would come on those pans, it, it can cause it, the saltiness to leach out of the other many minerals in the Dead Sea. And so that so-called salt in the salt pan would lose its saltiness. So in effect, that salt is no longer salty. So, what good is that stuff if it's no longer salty? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is, no, it is not longer good for anything except to be thrown and trampled under people's feet. So we know that it's not possible for salt that is stored in a cupboard, that we have table salt and it's dry to lose its saltiness as sodium chloride because it's a very stable compound and saltiness won't dissipate. But in Jesus' day, the process of making salt was often unsalty. This happened quite a bit in those salt pans. So what good is that salt if it's no longer, unsal if it's no longer salty? What is leaching out of our saltiness? What things are shaping, what things are influencing our heart that then negatively affect our hands, our feet, our eyes? Everyone is salted by fire. Everyone is salted with fire. There is a refining fire for everyone. And, and in those tests and trials, Jesus issued a warning that there's a property in us that makes us vital for life. People need what we have. That, that what we have, people need for life, just like salt. And if that is lost, there is no longer any possibility to give that life-giving impact. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. As a living sacrifice for Jesus and the gospel, as salt of the earth, knowing we will go through tests and trials. We, we have opportunity to sustain, to flavor, to preserve life, to heal, to disinfect. Unless we lose our saltiness. When our hearts are not transformed into, into the image of Jesus and it, and it leads us to actions of our hands, feet, and eyes that are inconsistent with the life of Jesus Christ. If our lives are so compromised, so diluted with other things, what, what good is salt if it has lost its saltiness? Where the gospel impact has been leached out of us, where it has been diluted to the extent that it has no effect. Perhaps this is what we're experiencing in the Western world as a church. I'm just throwing a hypothesis out there. Perhaps many of the churches and people who claim to follow Jesus have lost their saltiness in the Western church. Jesus, the gospel, has leached out of them. They've been diluted with other things, that, that they've lost their saltiness. Paul wrote this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16. He said, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
I, I wonder if the church in the Western world, if the church in the Bay Area has not kept a close enough watch on itself and its teachings. If individuals who claim to follow Jesus have not kept a close watch on oneself and on our teachings. So it is not all that surprising to see that we've lost our saltiness, that we've diluted what we believe in, that we've allowed things to kind of leach our saltiness away. It is possible to obtain theological and philosophical knowledge without it impacting our lives. That is possible. We see it all the time, don't we? It is possible to establish a way of life that we think is gospel-focused, that is Jesus-focused, but in reality is divorced from the gospel. What good is salt if it has lost its saltiness? And I, and I think that many have lost their saltiness because they haven't kept a close watch on themselves and on their teaching. And so Jesus asks, how will you make it salty again? How will you do this? And so he says, this is how. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What's this salt that we are to have in ourselves? And we go back to the good news. We go back to the gospel. The gospel is what unites us. It's our selfishness and our pride and the things unrelated to the gospel that leads us to fight with one another. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So if you want to be salty, don't fight. Exemplify peace with one another. Have love for one another. And I, I know that this is way easier said than done. That person that you're fighting with, like trying to figure out how to bring about peace when you've been fighting with them for so long, whether that be a spouse or a friend or a colleague. But you see that these things need to happen in our homes. These things need to happen in our church, in our workplaces. It needs to happen wherever we're at. Because people are always at war. Always. I'll prove it to you. Just go on the freeway. <laughs> the, that's it. We're always at war. It's Mother's Day. Go to a restaurant after this for Sunday brunch. War. It's war, it's war everywhere. And so you see that this is another quality of salt, is that it gets people thirsty. It gets people thirsty, and, and people are thirsty for peace in a world that is always at war. That's how we become salty. We live at peace with one another. Right? How, how will we be salty? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is impossible without being gospel-centered. Because we get really self-absorbed. We get self-centered when we're not Jesus-centered without that banner of love over us in the midst of our tests and our trials, which we all know are going to come to us. And we need to be reminded that even in those tests and trials, we are to be at peace. We must not view or treat sin casually. We must look to the refining fire during our tests and trials while keeping our saltiness and, bringing and being at peace with one another. 
Let me pray for us. And as you have your eyes closed, would you just think through some of these things? Especially on, on a Mother's Day, because I, I do know that I, I get the opportunity to reconcile mothers with their children often who've had some really tough relationships with their mom. And perhaps you're losing your saltiness because you're not working towards that peace with a loved one. That your heart's not changing so that it then in turn changes your hands and your feet and your eyes in what you do, in the direction you're going, in what you see. How will you be salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And so I do want to lift up anyone who has an issue with their mother in particular this morning. And I want to pray for you. Lord, in our country today, we celebrate Mother's Day, and yet every day we are told in your commandment to honor our father and mother. And so, God, for today, I want to pray specifically for those who are not reconciled with their mother, or perhaps they have a child that is not reconciled to them. And I want to ask God for you to intervene, for that saltiness to be restored in that relationship, knowing that within that there's, there's tests and there's trials but Lord, help us to see how we are causing others to sin. Help us to see the things that are keeping us back, that are keeping us separated from you, where we're missing the mark. We all realize that we go through difficult times. And at those difficult times, it's so easy to leach out that saltiness, for that saltiness to be diluted. God, we want that back. And so, Lord, would you restore that saltiness in people? Would you help us to bring about peace in the most impossible circumstances? In a world that is at war, may we be a bright testimony to who you are in Jesus' name. Amen.